Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Chapter 17, Part B of The Delafield Affair by Florence Finch Kelly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 17, Part B. Sentence of Death. I can't help it, she exclaimed in a vehement whisper. I have to like him, and I shan't try any more not to. He wouldn't hurt Daddy. I know he wouldn't. Because—because he wouldn't. And because he loves me. A tiny smile curved her lips as she touched the plant caressingly, and presently her whisper went on. If I could only tell Daddy that he needn't be afraid or worried— Oh, I wish I could, but he mustn't guess I know." Her lips ceased moving, and she stared unseeingly at the cactus, as her thoughts slowly took shape. "'It's worrying Daddy awfully, and I mustn't let it go on any longer. I'll tell Mr. Conrad who Delafield is, and he'll stop right then. I know he will. He'll despise us afterward. Oh, he won't love me after that. But poor Daddy, he won't be worried any more." Bancroft and Miss Dent were alike convinced that his pursuer would be ruthless in the fulfillment of revenge. Arguing from their knowledge of men, their experience of the world, and their observation of his character, each had come to the fixed conclusion that no softening of heart or staying of hand could be expected from him when he knew the truth. Lucy, having neither knowledge of men nor experience of the world to guide her, had not reasoned about the matter at all. She had jumped at once to her conclusion, as soon as she knew her father's identity, that he had nothing to fear from Curtis. Her decision was partly due to her own temperament, which she instinctively felt to be somewhat akin to Conrad's, and partly to her knowledge of a side of his character of which Louise knew little and her father still less. It was further strengthened by her intuition that he loved her, something the young man himself had not yet realized. Other than this belief in his love, she could have offered no reason for her assurance that he would give over his purpose as soon as he learned to whose door his quest was leading him. But neither her father nor Louise, had it been possible for them to argue with her, could have shaken her conviction. The next day Bancroft, Conrad, and Pendleton went together to the courthouse to see the closing scenes of the Melgares trial. The leading men of the town were there, as well as the usual hangers-on of a courtroom, and a few women, both Mexican and American, sat in a little railed space at one side. Every seat was filled, and a standing line of late-comers fringed the walls. Across the room Bancroft saw Rutherford Jenkins. The crowd was disappointed by the judge's charge to the jury, which was brief, simple, and confined to bare statements of law and fact. 
so it sat still and waited after the jury had filed out, feeling sure that the deliberation would not be long, and that something interesting might be expected afterward from the judge, for he had the reputation of doing and saying whimsical things. He was a bookish man, who studied his law volumes much, but for relaxation turned often to romance and poetry. He had a knack for making jingles himself, and his pronouncements from the bench, whether he was charging a jury, calling for order, sentencing a prisoner, or making peace between warring attorneys, were as likely as not to be in rhyme of his own improvisation, or in aptly applied quotations from the words of the mighty. The jury came back presently with a verdict of murder in the first degree. Judge Banks asked the prisoner if he knew of any reason why the court should not sustain the finding of the jury. Melgares said nothing and Delmay Baxter, his counsel, who had made the best fight for the Mexican that he could, shook his head. He had given his services, and cared to take no further trouble. All that now stood between the prisoner and the gallows was a little space of time. The judge looked out of the window into the trembling green depths of the cottonwoods beside the courthouse, and for a moment there was silence in the room. He was a slight man, with dreamy blue eyes, and a square fine face, framed by side-whiskers, short and thin. It was quite like him to be trying to realize, in that brief moment, just how it would seem to have the gallows looming in one's path so short a way ahead. He ordered the prisoner to stand. Sheriff Tillinghurst, his usual smile absent from his kindly face, helped Melgares to his feet. The Mexican's wife, who had been seated beside him, drooped forward, her breast shaken with sobs, and her lips moving in whispers of prayer. "'Jose Maria Melgares, you have heard the finding of the jury,' began the judge, and waited for the sonorous voice of the court interpreter to send the words rolling in musical Spanish over the room. "'And it is now necessary for me to pronounce upon you the sentence of this court. The rains will soon be here, Jose Maria Melgares. The grass will spring forth, the flowers bloom, and all the plains and hillsides grow green and luxuriant, but you will not be here to see and enjoy their beauty, Jose Maria Melgares. The rains of summer, the golden days of October, the storms of winter, will all alike pass unknown and unheeded over your head. Spring will come again with its new life, and the lambs will frolic beside their mothers and the little calves bleat in the valleys. But your eyes will not see the sights, nor your ears hear the sounds, Jose Maria Melgares. It will not matter to you that the skies of New Mexico bend blue and beautiful above your head. The stars will march across the midnight heavens, proclaiming that God is good, and that he holds the universe in the hollow of his hand. Day after day the sun will rise in his fiery might, and blazon forth upon earth and sky the goodness and glory of the Almighty. The moon will swim across the violet skies of night, wax from slender crescent to fair white disk, and wane again. But to you, José María Melgares, it will all be as nothing. For you, life is a tale that has been told. There is nothing more for you now, José María Melgares, save the moral, and even that is no longer of interest to you. For you have been guilty of a heinous crime, José María Melgares. You have taken the life of your fellow man, and therefore your life is forfeit. It is the sentence of this court, Jose Maria Melgares, that you be hanged by the neck until dead, and may God have mercy upon your soul. The last melodious syllables of the interpreter's voice resounded through the room, and died in sudden silence. Then the moment's hush was broken by a shriek, as Senora Melgares 
sprang to her feet, stretching her arms out wildly to the judge. "'No, no, senor judge, it is not right that my husband should die,' she cried out in Spanish. "'He was made to steal the mare, and the man who hired him to do it and brought all this trouble upon us, he is the one who should die. There he sits over there. Senor Jenkins, Don Rutherford Jenkins, he is the one who made my husband steal the mare, who gave him money to do it, because he had a grudge against Senor Conrad.' and he is the one sheriff tillinghurst his hand on her shoulder was urging her to sit down her husband was ordering her to stop and there was a sudden hubbub all over the room the judge rapped on his desk and threatened to have the room cleared jenkins sat quite still glaring wrathfully at bancroft conrad clenched his fist his blue eyes blazing as he exploded an oath into pendleton's ear it was his first intimation that the man from las vegas had been behind the attempted theft of his mare jenkins was waiting for bancroft at the corner of the bank i want to see you at once in private he said curtly and without a word the banker led the way to his office a nice trick you played me jenkins began his voice hot and sneering i thought of going straight to conrad and that's what i ought to have done to serve you right well why didn't you bancroft asked impassively Jenkins took quick alarm. Had the young ranchman, with his impetuous loyalty, told his friend what had happened in the Albuquerque Hotel? But perhaps Bancroft was only bluffing, in which case he himself could bluff as well as another. I didn't because I thought it would be the square thing to see you first, and find out if you have any explanation to offer of that woman's performance. Unless you can satisfy me you had nothing to do with it, I shall see Conrad and tell him everything he doesn't know about you before I leave town to-night. Bancroft reflected. If Jenkins approached Curtis in that young man's present mood, there was ample likelihood that the blackmailer would never trouble him again. Yet there was the chance that he might say in time to save himself the word that would stay Conrad's hand. He dared not take the chance. "'I advise you,' he said slowly, "'if you value a whole skin, not to go near Kirk Conrad while he is in the state of mind in which I just left him.' As for Senora Melgares, are you crazy enough to suppose I had anything to do with that? It's evident, Bancroft, that you put her up to something you were afraid to do yourself. You wanted to put me in a hole, and you got her to do it for you. Bancroft made a gesture of annoyance. Oh, well, if you've got no more sobby than that, he began, but went on quietly, I give you my word of honor. The word of honor of Sumner L. Delafield, Jenkins sneered. The banker's eyes flashed as he made an impulsive start, but he went on with quiet emphasis. I give you my word of honor that I knew no more than you what the Malgari's woman was going to say when she jumped up. You ought to see for yourself that it would have been to my advantage to keep this knowledge entirely in my own hands. Nevertheless, Jenkins replied sullenly, you could have prevented her outbreak if you'd wanted to, and if there are any legal proceedings started against me because of what she said— I expect you and Dell Baxter to stop them at once, and I want you to give me, before I leave this room, a sum of money or a check equal to what I receive on the first of every month, and understand that this has no connection with that payment, which will come on the first of next month, as agreed. It's little enough after this outrage." Bancroft glared at his companion for a moment. Jenkins sat up with a defiant look and glared back. The banker turned to his desk and wrote the check without a word. "'And the woman's charge?' the other asked threateningly, as he took it. "'If any action is begun, I'll do my best to stop it.' 
Well satisfied with the result, Jenkins hastened down the street, intending to cross over to his hotel at the next bridge and wait in the privacy of his room until train time. As he approached the courthouse corner, Sheriff Tillinghurst, Little Jack Wilder, Pendleton, and Conrad came out of the building. Curtis saw the hurrying figure, and the light of battle leaped into his eyes. He rushed past the others, and before Jenkins had time to draw his revolver, was upon him and had pinioned his arms. Pendleton ran forward, shouting, "'Give it to him, Kurt. He deserves it.' Jack smiled the sheriff. "'I reckon this is going to be a sure good scrap. But we don't need to see it. We'd better hike.' And they disappeared up the side street. Jenkins was vainly struggling to reach his hip pocket. Conrad got him down, set one knee on his chest, plucked forth the gun, and threw it to Pendleton. "'Now, you damned skunk!' he exclaimed. "'You're going to get every lick that's coming to you.' I won't dirty powder by using my gun on you, but I'm sure going to set the standard for lickings in this town." And to this day in the city of Golden, the pummeling that Rudford Jenkins forthwith received is spoken of as the utmost measure of punishment that a man may take and live. At the end Conrad took the limp body under one arm and carried it to the physician's office. "'Here, Doc,' he said, "'is some work for you. Send the bill to me.' End of chapter 17, part B.